Hello and welcome to Hari Cuts. I'm Hari Stephen Kumar and this is the pandemic season of this podcast. It is Sunday, April 19th and it is still a global pandemic out there. Um, most of us are probably stuck inside in various stages of quarantine. Um, and so, of course, in this podcast, I'm uh, reading every day uh, sections of the essay, A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again by David Foster Wallace, uh, written in 1996 on a Caribbean cruise about how terrible cruises are. So as bad as it is for those of us who have been stuck inside now, for me at least, this is now week six coming up. As bad as it is, it could be worse. We could be stuck inside a cabin on board a cruise ship. Speaking of being stuck inside a cabin on board a cruise ship, let's now check in with friend David Foster Wallace back in 1996 on board the MV Nader at sea on its way to the Caribbean. So without further ado, I give you section 10 of A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again from 1996 by David Foster Wallace. I don't know how well a claustrophobe would do, but for the agoraphobe, a 7NC luxury megacruiser presents a whole array of attractively enclosing options. The agoraphobe can choose not to leave the ship, footnote 58, uh, at sea, this is small agora potatoes, but in port, once the doors open and the gangway extends, it represents a true choice and is thus agoraphobically valid. So back to the essay. The agoraphobe can choose not to leave the ship or can restrict herself only to certain decks, or can decline to leave the particular deck her cabin is on, or can eschew the view-conducive open-air railings on either side of that certain deck and keep exclusively to the deck's interior enclosed part, or the agoraphobe can simply not leave her cabin at all. I who am not a true, can't-even-go-to-the-supermarket type agoraphobe, but I I am what might be called a borderline or semi-agoraphobe, I come, nevertheless, to love very deeply cabin 1009, exterior port. Footnote 59. 1009 indicates that it's on deck 10, and port refers to the side of the ship it's on, And exterior means that I have a window. There are also, of course, interior cabins off the inner sides of the deck's halls. But I hereby advise any prospective 7NC passenger with claustrophobic tendencies to make sure and specify exterior when making cabin reservations. Back to the essay. I have nevertheless come to love very deeply cabin 1009, exterior port. It is made of a fawn-colored enamelish polymer, and its walls are extremely thick and solid. I can drum annoyingly on the wall above my bed for up to five minutes before my aft neighbors pound very faintly back in annoyance. <laughs> the cabin 
is 13 size 11 ked shoes long by 12 keds wide. With a little peninsular vestibule protruding out toward a cabin door that's got three separate locking technologies and trilingual lifeboat instructions bolted to its inside and a whole deck of do not disturb cards hanging from the inside knob. Footnote 16. Uh, the non-U.S. agoraphobe will be heartened to know that this tech includes bitter nicked sturen and prier de ne pas déranger and si prega non disturbare and my personal favorite favor de no molestar. <laughs> Back to the essay. The vestibule is one and one-half times as wide as I. The cabin's bathroom is off one side of the vestibule, and off the other side is the wonder closet, a complicated honeycomb of shelves and drawers and hangers and cubby holes and personal fireproof safe. The wonder closet is so intricate in its utilization of every available cubic centimeter, that all I can say is it must have been designed by a very organized person indeed. All the way across the cabin, there is a deep enamel ledge running along the port wall under a window that I think is called my porthole. Footnote 67. If you're either a little kid or an anorectic, you can probably sit on this ledge to do your dreamy, contemplative sea-gazing, but a, a raised and buttock-hostile lip at the ledge's outer border makes this impractical for a full-size adult. End of footnote. Um, as are the portholes in Ships on TV, this porthole is indeed round, but it is not small. And in terms of its importance, to the room's mood and raison, it resembles a cathedral's rose window. It's made of that kind of very thick glass that drive-up bank tellers stand behind. In the corner of the porthole's glass is this, and Hari note here, there's a little diagram he's drawn here off the particular, um, you know, like a watermark or logo that's stamped in, in the side of the, uh, the porthole. I'll take a picture of this and I'll post it on the on my Instagram, Hari Tell a Story, uh, to accompany this. And the sub-Hari note is, he goes to all this effort to describe his cabin, and, but he doesn't draw a map of the cabin. Instead, he painstakingly draws this little logo of what's on the glass. <sighs> I can only in, in, imagine the conversations he had as editor. Anyway, the logo looks like a triangle, and in the middle of the triangle are the letters... CJC, and under that, those letters are the words CC Jensen, Denmark, and that's the manufacturer of this of this um, glass. All right, back to the essay. Right under that, he goes, in the corner of the portholes glass is this. And there's the logo. You can thump the glass with your fist, without give or vibration. It's really good glass. Every morning at exactly 0834 hours. A Filipino guy in a blue jumpsuit stands on one of the lifeboats that hang in rows between decks 9 and 10 
and sprays my porthole with a hose to get the salt off, which is fun to watch. Cabin 1009's dimensions are just barely on the good side of the line between very, very snug and cramped. Packed into its near square are a big, good bed and two bedside tables with lamps and an 18-inch TV with five at-sea cable registered trademark options, two of which show continuous loops of the Simpson trial. This is how you know, this is the O.J. Simpson trial. Footnote 62. There are also continual showings of about a dozen second-run movies via what I get the sense is a VCR somewhere right here on board, because certain irregularities in tracking show up in certain films over and over. The movies run 24-7, and I end up watching several of them so many times that I can now do their dialogue verbatim. These movies include It Could Happen to You, which is the It's a Wonderful Life with a lottery twist thing. Uh, Jurassic Park, which does not stand up well. Its essential plotlessness doesn't emerge until the third viewing. But after that, the semi-agoraphobe treats it like a porno flick, twiddling his thumbs until the T-Rex and Velociraptor parts, uh, which do actually stand up well. Uh, the movie Wolf, which is stupid. The Little Rascals, which is nauseous. Uh, Andre, which is kind of old yeller with a seal. Uh, the Client, uh, with another incredibly good child actor. Where do they get all these Olivier-grade children? And Renaissance Map, Man, this is with Danny DeVito. A movie that tugs at your sentiments like a dog at a pancuff. Except it's hard not to like any movie that has an academic as the hero. End of footnote. Uh, two of which show continuous loops of the Simpson trial. There's also a white enamel desk that doubles as a vanity, and a round glass table on which is a blanket that's alternately filled... Um, a blanket... <laughs> and a round glass table on which is a basket <laughs> that's alternatively filled with fresh fruit and with husks and rinds of same. I don't know whether it's SOP or a subtle journalistic perk, but every time I leave the cabin for more than the requisite half hour, I come back to find a new basket of fruit covered in snug blue-tinted saran on the glass table. It's good, fresh fruit, and it's always there. I've never eaten so much fruit in my life. Cabin 1009's bathroom deserves extravagant praise. I've seen more than my share of bathrooms, and this is one bitchingly nice bathroom. It is five and a half keds to the edge of the shower's step up and sign to watch your step. The room's done in white enamel and gleaming brushed and stainless steel. Its overhead lighting is luxury lighting, some kind of blue-intensive eurofluorescence that's run through a diffusion filter so it's diagnostically acute without being brutal. Footnote 63. 
what it is is lighting for upscale and appearance conscious adults who want a clear picture of whatever might be aesthetically problematic that day, but also want to be reassured that the overall aesthetic situation is pretty darn good. End of footnote. Right by the light switch is an Alisco Sirocco brand hairdryer that's brazed right onto the wall and comes on automatically when you take it out of the mount. The Sirocco's high setting just about takes your head off. Next to the hairdryer, there's both 115-volt and 230-volt sockets, plus a grounded 110-volt for razors. The sink is huge, and its bowl deep, without seeing precipitous or ungentle of grade. Good C.C. Jensen plate mirror covers the whole wall over the sink. The steel soap dish is striated to let sog water out and minimize that annoying underside of the bar slime. The uh, ingenious consideration of the uh, anti-slime soap dish is, is particularly affecting. Keep in mind that 1009 is a mid-price single cabin. The mind just positively reels at what a, a luxury penthouse-type cabin's bathroom must be like. Footnote 64. Um, attempts to get to see uh, a luxury cabin's loo were consistently misconstrued and rebuffed by upscale penthouse-type naderites. There are disadvantages to luxury cruising as a civilian and not as an identifiable member of the press. And so but simply enter 1009's bathroom and hit the overhead lights and on comes an exhaust fan, an automatic exhaust fan, whose force and aerodynamism gives steam or your more offensive type odors just no quarter at all. Footnote 65. 1009's bathroom always smells of a strange but not unnice Norwegian disinfectant whose scent resembles what it would smell like if someone who knew the exact organochemical composition of a lemon but had never, in fact, smelled a lemon, tried to synthesize the scent of a lemon. Kind of the same relation to a real lemon as a Bayer's children's aspirin to a real orange. The, the cabin itself, though, on the other hand, after it's been cleaned, has no odor. None. Not on the carpets, the bedding, the insides of the desk's drawers, the wood of the wonder closet's doors, Nothing. One of the very few totally odorless places I've ever been in. This, too, eventually starts giving me the creeps. And a footnote. The fan's suction is such that if you stand right underneath its louvered vent, it makes your hair stand straight up on your head, which together with the concussive and abundantly rippling action of the Sirocco hairdryer, makes for hours of fun in the lavishly lit mirror. 
The shower itself overachieves in a big way. The hot setting's water is exfoliatingly hot. But it takes only one preset manipulation of the shower knob to get perfect 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit water. My own personal home should have such water pressure. The shower head's force pins you helplessly to the stall's opposite wall. And at 98.6 degrees, the head's massage setting makes your eyes roll up and your sphincter just about give. Footnote 66. Perhaps designed with this in mind, the shower's floor has a 10-degree grade from all sides to the center's drain, and which drain is the size of a lunch plate and has audibly aggressive suction. End of footnote. The shower head and its flexible steel line are also detachable, so you can hold the head and direct its punishing stream just at, e.g., your particularly dirty right knee or something. Footnote 67. Uh, this detachable and concussive shower head can allegedly also be employed for non-hygienic and even prurient purposes, apparently. I overheard guys from a small U of Texas spring break contingent, the, the only college-age group on the whole nader. I heard this group regale each other about their ingenuity with the showerhead. One guy in particular was fixated on the idea that somehow the shower's technology could be rigged to administer fellatio if he could just get access to a, quote, metric ratchet set, unquote. Yeah, your guess here is as good as mine. End of footnote. Toiletry-wise, flanking the sink's mirror are broad, shallow, bolted steel mini-baskets with all sorts of free stuff in them. There's Caswell Massey conditioning shampoo in a convenient airplane liquor-sized bottle. There's Caswell Massey almond and aloe hand and body emulsion with silk. There's a sturdy plastic shoehorn and a chamois, uh, chamois mitt for either eyeglasses or light shoe shining. Both these items are the navy blue on searing white that are celebrities' colors. Footnote 68. The nader itself is navy trim on a white field, and all the mega lines have their own trademark color schemes lime green on white, aqua on white, robin's egg on white, barn red on white. White, apparently, being a constant. End of footnote. There's not one, but two fresh shower caps at all times. There's good old, unpretentious, unswishy, safeguard soap. There's washcloths without nubble or a nap. And, of course, towels you want to propose to. In the vestibule's wonder closet are extra shemmy blankets, and hypoallergenic pillows and plastic celebrity cruises emblazoned bags of all different sizes and configurations for your laundry and optional dry cleaning, etc. Footnote 69. Uh, you can apparently get butler service 
and automatic send-out dry cleaning and shoe shining, all at prices that I'm told are not out of line. But huh, the forms you have to fill out and hang on your door for all this are wildly complex. And I'm scared of setting in motion mechanisms of service that seem potentially overwhelming. But all this is still small potatoes compared to 1009's fascinating and potentially malevolent toilet. A harmonious concordance of elegant form and vigorous function flanked by rolls of tissue so soft as to be without the usual perforates for tearing. My toilet has above it this sign. This toilet is connected to a vacuum sewage system. Please do not throw into the toilet anything than ordinary toilet waste and toilet paper. Footnote 70. Um, the missing predicative preposition here is sick. Ditto what looks to be an implied image of thrown excrement. Uh, but the mistake seems somehow endearing, humanizing. And uh, this toilet needed all the humanizing it could get. End of footnote. Yes, that's right, a vacuum toilet. And as with the exhaust fan above, not a lightweight or unambitious vacuum. The toilet's flush produces a brief but traumatizing sound, a kind of held high bee gargle, as of some gastric disturbance on a cosmic scale. Along with this sound comes a concussive suction, so awesomely powerful that it's both scary and strangely comforting. Your waist seems less removed than hurled from you, and hurled with a velocity that lets you feel as though the waste is going to end up someplace so far away from you that it will have become an abstraction, a kind of existential level sewage treatment. Footnote 71 and 72. Footnote 71. It's pretty hard not to see connections between the exhaust fan and the toilet's vacuums, an almost final solution, like eradication of animal wastes and odors. Wastes and odors that are, by all rights, a natural consequence of Henry VIII-like meals and unlimited free cabin service and fruit baskets. And the death denial transcendence fantasies that the seven and sea luxury megacruise is trying to enable. End of that footnote. Footnote 72. Uh, the Nader's vacuum sewage system begins after a while to hold such a fascination for me that I end up going hat in hand back to hotel manager Dermatitis to ask once again for access to the ship's nether parts. And once again, I pull a boner with dermatitis. I innocently mention my specific fascination with the ship's vacuum sewage system, which boner is consequent to another and prior boner by which I had failed to discover in my pre-boarding researches that there had been, just a few months before this, a tremendous scandal in which the, I think, QE2 megaship had been discovered dumping waste over the side 
in mid-voyage in violation of numerous national and maritime codes and had been videotaped doing this by a couple of passengers who subsequently apparently sold the videotape to some network news magazine. And so the whole mega cruise industry was in a state of almost Dixonian paranoia about unscrupulous journalists trying to manufacture scandals about megaships' handling of waste. Even behind his mirrored sunglasses, I can tell that Mr. Dermatitis is severely upset about my interest in sewage. And he denies my request to eyeball the vacuum sewage system, the VSS, with a complex defensiveness that I couldn't even begin to chart out here. It is only later that night, Wednesday, 3.15, at supper, at good old Table 64 in the Five Star CR, that my cruise-savvy table mates fill me in on the QE2 waste scandal, and they scream, footnote 72a, literally scream, they scream with mirth at the clay-footed naivete with which I had gone to dermatitis with what was in fact an innocent, if puerile, fascination with hermetically evacuated waste. And such is my own embarrassment and hatred of Mr. Dermatitis by this time that I begin to feel like if the hotel manager really does think I'm some kind of investigative journalist with a hard-on for shark dangers and sewage scandals, then he might think it'd be worth the risk to have me harmed in some way. And through a set of neurotic connections I won't even try to defend, I, for about a day and a half, begin to fear that the nader's Greek episcopate will somehow contrive to use the incredibly potent and forceful 1009 toilet itself for my assassination. I don't know that they'll somehow, like, lubricate the bowl and up the suction to where not just my waist, but I myself will be sucked down through the, through the seat's opening and hurled into some kind of abstract septic holding tank. And that's the end of section 10. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, a few Hari notes here from the end of that section. So that was, let's see, how many pages was that? That was, okay, one, two, three, four, five, six and a half pages. And one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen footnotes, six and a half pages, fifteen footnotes, just on the inside of his cabin. You know, so, so many of us are stuck inside our, our homes, our apartments, our rooms, and we didn't have a choice in this. Many of us are in stages of quarantine in countries where it's, it's forbidden to even go outside for children, in Spain, for example. But here, David Foster Wallace chooses to stay in his cabin on a, on a freaking huge luxury cruise ship where he could be walking around anywhere, and he ends up actually, he does tend to walk, walk around everywhere. But for this section here, he's, he's spent hours inside his cabin and painstakingly describing and getting curious about so much that's in his cabin and describing all of those things in such delicious detail. You know, 
And you have to wonder, for David Foster Wallace, he's now described himself as an agoraphobe, somebody who's afraid of, of, of being in, in, out in the open. Um, he's also described himself a little bit previously as being socially nervous. You know, he has to kind of muster up the will to go and be social with, with strangers. And then he can only take so much of that before he, you know, jump, jumps back to his cabin. And you have to wonder, you know, just, just how torturous was, was it for somebody like David Foster Wallace with his, uh, you know, anxieties and with his, with his um, discomfort um, to be on this cruise ship, to be sent on this cruise ship, on this assignment, to write this essay. Um, and I'm wondering, like, as we think about our situation now, all of us in this pandemic and thinking about for so many of us, it's really difficult to be stuck indoors, stuck alone, stuck isolated for such a long time. And I'm wondering if maybe this is the kind of situation that David Foster Wallace might actually be pretty well suited for. Um, there's there's something here that he says about uh, the uh, the complete lack of order in in one of the uh, in in the cabin, uh, and he and he says that this this lack of order is itself kind of creepy for him. Um, I can tell you that having you know I'm, I'm I'm recovering from the coronavirus and I've I've got mild symptoms and one of those mild symptoms is actually a loss of smell and taste, and I can tell you that in my apartment, it it has been exactly that kind of very creepy feeling, to to feel like I'm I'm surrounded by no odor at all. I can't smell a lot of things in my apartment, but there's also this image he describes here. You know, the cabin itself, on the other hand, has no odor, not in the carpets, the bedding, the insides, the desk drawers, the wood of the wonder closets, doors, nothing. And I just have this image of David Foster Wallace, like, painstakingly sticking his nose everywhere in the cabin, trying to smell something, anything, which, along with, like, the fruit that's there and his his explorations of the bathroom, it all just makes it a little endearing to, to imagine David Foster Wallace kind of, like, looking around his cabin and, and trying to while the time away by by describing everything there. And so what would, be, what would it be like if those of us who are stuck inside, if we were to actually like look around our own apartments, our own rooms, our own homes, with sort of a David Foster Wallaceian level of curiosity and a level of attention to detail and to kind of really see things in our, our spaces with David Foster Wallace's eyes, what, what, just to imagine what it might be like to actually have him <laughs> be in quarantine with us, I think we'd probably drive each other nuts. Um, but what might what might you get curious about about in your apartment? What might you get curious about in your appliances, in your toilet, the way your toilet works, or the way your sink looks, or the way your soap dishes? I hope that doesn't drive you too crazy. And so, in the meantime. Tomorrow, we're going to jump into the next section, section 11. But until then, stay safe, stay home, stay healthy, stay human. Thank you.